Let's go. Let's go. Oh, oh did you want to? Sorry. I'll let you. I'll let you. Next time. I'm in love with you. Snap out of it. I'll have what she's having. Too many guys think I'm a concept, or I complete them, or I'm gonna make them alive. But I'm just a fucked up girl who's looking for my own peace of mind. Don't assign me yours. Caustic wit is my religion. I would make a great queen because I am so stubborn. I say when it comes to stardom and Lauren, there are no accidents. Hi, Karen Peterson. Hello, everybody, and welcome to Citizen Dame, the podcast where we talk about exciting things that happened in the yesteryears of Hollywood, because that's what we're doing right now. Uh, I am Lauren Humphreys-Brooks, and with me, as always, is Karen Peterson. Hello, Karen. Your intros are so much more positive than mine. (laughs) (laughs) I am actually a very optimistic person. This is something that I've learned. I'm I'm sardonic, but I'm also like, actually, things might be okay. You're starting to see the real Lauren, guys. <laughs> oh my god. So, Meanwhile, I'm just you... getting more and more bitter as time goes on. <laughs> <laughs> I'm bitter too. I'm, uh, yeah, I'm constantly angry, but you know, angry yet optimistic. I think that that's a, I think that's a good balance. Yeah. <laughs> How are you doing, Karen? I'm okay. Uh, this week my car decided, you know, it's time to retire. It's been a good run, so I'm working on... Replacing that, that's been fun, but that's okay. Yesterday I watched all four of the Scream movies because I was like, I just need something to distract me from what's happening in the world. And I've never watched <laughs> all four of them back to back like that. It was really interesting. Was... I think that's a good project. Yeah. It's a good project. It's like, I love the Scream movies. I actually, I'm one of the few people I think that likes all of the Scream movies. Oh, like, I do for too, yeah. reasons. Mm-hmm. And the first one is definitely... I think it's definitely the best in the sense that it it's it's so different. It's doing something so different um, than we're used to. But each subsequent one like does some really interesting shit. Yeah, it does. It really does. And um, watching them back to back like that, it's really interesting to see where the similarities are that keep it a connected franchise and where they do a little bit, where they kind of diverge a little bit. And it works. Every one of them, the things that are different, really work for the story of that movie. And I I really enjoy it. And I think, um, and I actually, it's funny, because I had watched Scream 3 a couple of weeks ago because people were just crapping on it again. And, um, because I don't know, for some reason, people just really hate that one. And I was like, you know what, I'm going to watch this again standalone and just kind of see what I think. So... And it reminded me of all the reasons that I like it. and But when I was watching it as part of just watching all four, I got to that one and I was just like, no, whether it's by itself or in conjunction with the rest of them, this is actually really well done. And it does, it really, Wes Craven really understood what trilogies are. Mm -hmm. And even though, yes, there was a four, there will be a five, that core Scream 1, 2, and 3, those are a trilogy. They were designed that way. And he got it, and he knew what he was doing when he made that movie. And it really does wrap up some things and and have these really cool bookend parts that are, you know, like what happens with Cotton Weary and how he starts off being this innocent man in prison and he ends up dying 
he gets murdered and his girlfriend, the last thing that she thinks is that he's the one that's murdering her. So he dies a wrongfully accused person. And it's just mm-hmm. interesting. Like, like those kinds of things are like, huh? Wow. That's actually really well thought through. And then Scream 4, I think, is actually pretty brilliant. The way that they move the franchise into a new generation. And yeah. um, it had the nostalgia factor. But, and it was definitely still about Sydney and, and her experiences. But it wasn't only about her. And it was really getting to the heart of, like, kids these days. And, and I thought it was really, really well done. And that's another one that it's like people just kind of crapped on it when it came out. And it's like you need to really look at what it's doing, what it's saying, because this is very smart commentary on yeah. on the world. Yeah. Yeah, I, I remember when Scream 4 came out and I, I went to see it in the theater. I loved it. Like, mm-hmm. I thought it was so fucking clever. And just like, it was one of those, there's certain, one of the things I like about the Scream series is that it's so aware of itself, but also still does that awareness really well and really cleverly. And it continues to do that throughout the entire series. And so when I got to Scream 4, I was, I was sort of like, oh, like, yeah, it's, it's the, it's the reboot, you know, it's the remake. Um, We're going to start, but it's also got this nostalgic relationship to a film and a story that is already about nostalgia, right? That is already about, you know, meta narrative and things like that. I love Scream 4. I remember that. I can't believe that people didn't like it. I was like, what is there not to like about this? This is this is loads of fun. Yeah. And and I remember it was one of those movies when I was watching it, I was like, this is so good. And then afterwards I started seeing what everybody else was saying about it. And I was like, wait, did we watch the same movie? Cause I don't know what you people are talking about. And, and it's one that I think a lot of people have come around on now. And there's like, I see a lot more positive discussion on it. And I don't know if that's just that people who liked it back then, but didn't say so or speaking up now, or if people have really changed their minds on it, but I'm glad that the conversation has shifted because it is really brilliant. We'll see what happens with Scream 5 now that Wes Craven won't be directing it. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. I'll have to wait and see, but I I don't know. It's, it's a fun, it's a fun series. And I, I do think that it says that Wes, Wes Craven understands his genre and also understands the problems with his own genre. And that's, I think one of the things that makes it work so well. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so however, uh, we are not talking about the scream movies for this episode, (laughs) although we could like sometime, maybe we'll just do an episode about like scream and slasher films. We should, we definitely should. We should. (laughs) (laughs) But this, this week, since we have talked about the silent era and early film, we talked about pre-code Hollywood. So then we wanted to talk a little bit about, um, what is typically referred to as the golden age of Hollywood and, uh, the studio system. Which, you know, there's there's some, whenever you begin talking about these basic historical periods, there's always overlap, right? So there's overlap between the studio system, obviously, and pre-code, because they're not mutually exclusive of each other. Uh, but the studio system and the Golden Age are usually somewhere between about 1927 and the rise of talking films, uh, and the Paramount cases in 1948. So that sort of block of the, the, the late, very late 20s, the 30s, and the 40s. Um, pushing up to the 1950s, you know, the studio system did not completely collapse with the Paramount cases. It just changed. 
and uh, and you don't really begin to get into um, uh, some of the more interesting American independent films until the 1960s and the 1970s, but things begin to break down around about that point. Uh, so we're talking about the golden age of Hollywood, which tends to be also the place where people who are big fans of classic films, that's what they talk about a lot. We're really talking about the studio system. We're talking about the, the golden age of Hollywood. We're talking about the big five studios. The big five, by the way, uh, which I always forget. I actually had to look them up to be certain I was getting them right, are um, Warner Brothers, RKO, Fox, MGM, and Paramount. And, uh, and then you get some of the smaller studios that are places like Columbia, Universal, United Artists, um, Disney, uh, all of whom had, uh, had fairly, were fairly powerful in their own rights, but they were not these you know, huge conglomerates that um, kind of governed the way that Hollywood operated. It's funny to think of a world where Universal and Disney were the smaller guys in town. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Exactly. And some of this, some of this really is about the way that the studio system is organized and the way that it operated um, as a business and with, stu with um, not just with studios, but with theaters. So one of the features of the studio system was um, what is known as vertical integration and block booking. So essentially you have these large studios that also own theaters and you have theaters that only show that only film only show films from certain studios and that are more or less forced into uh, what is known as block booking which is selling not a lot of films so like 10 films to a, to a theater as a single unit and usually what this resulted in um, was things like so if you know say Warner Brothers is selling Casablanca which is this big hit right to a theater they're also saying okay well we're going to give you Casablanca and uh and we're going to give you you know the Maltese Falcon but in addition to that you have to take eight other films mm -hmm. that are lesser films that are B pictures that are you know maybe that maybe don't have as big stars things like that and so you're essentially forcing these theaters to show multiple films from the same studio right um, and this is a way to kind of continue to develop their brand, to get people to come in, you're, you're, and also just to get people to, um, just to, to force the industry to actually exhibit these films. So this is, this is kind of the, the way that the studio system operated. The studio system also essentially owned actors. So actors were um, signed on to contracts with different studios, with Warner Brothers or with MGM or with uh, Paramount for multiple years or multiple films. Um, and this is why you get people like Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney or um, Roz Russell or Claudette Colbert winding up. So they wind up in these prestige pictures sometimes, but then they also do smaller films. They also get moved around a lot. You see uh, a number of the same character actors popping up in the same films, um, uh, for, for the same studios because everyone has been signed on to either a multi-year contract or a multi-picture contract they're saying like this is what you have to do in order to fulfill your contract so and it wasn't actors, just actors it was directors and writers too yeah everybody mm -hmm. everybody um so everyone is is basically giving giving their careers to a particular studio and on the one hand uh this was helpful for some people for for some actors and writers and uh directors because it essentially said like they have to use you right that you've signed on to a contract um 
if you're particularly if you're an unknown actor or if you're a little known actor and there's and you're suddenly like oh um i'm going to appear you know in five different films this year because that's part of my contract so on so there was a a certain sense in which the studio system contribute helped to uh to drive the careers of certain performers particularly their early careers because uh they more they were basically they had a vested interest in creating stars and in creating well-known directors or well-known writers because the better known they were, the more popular they were, the more money the studio made. Uh, and so this, this made sense. Of course, this also caused difficulties. You had actors who were literally punished for behavior that the studio did not like. Uh, and this could be all kinds of things um, by being given, right? They're being given to smaller studios to do uh, lesser pictures or films that were considered to be lesser. Um, this was actually, I believe, one of the things that happened to Claudette, Claudette Colbert in uh, It Happened One Night, that she was actually being very recalcitrant. And so they sent her to Columbia huh. uh, and forced her to make it happen one night. Of course, it happened one night. Became this incredibly famous <laughs> film. And it's gonna, it started it off as football okay. comedy. <laughs> yeah, but she was pissed about it, right? Yeah. Wow. Um, and and this happens. This actually happened to a lot of stars. This happened to Betty Davis a lot. It happened to Humphrey Bogart and James Cagney a lot. Um, stars that were were very often um, considered to be, you know, they were they caused trouble. Uh, either in their personal lives or professionally uh, within the studio system, they were known for, you know, agitating. They, they were, were known difficult. for, yeah, they were difficult to work with for multiple reasons. And so they would be forced into smaller films. Their their contracts would be extended. So if you have a, a certain a, a contract for a certain number of pictures, and then the studio is just like, well, we're just not going to put you in any films. And so you hang on to those stars and you essentially punish them. Um, by holding on to them for years and years uh, where they can't actually go off and work with other studios or with other directors, etc. So that was, that's kind of the way that the system worked. Uh, it eventually began breaking down in, um, in 1948 with the United States versus Paramount Pictures, which is known, also known as the Hollywood Antitrust Act of 1948. Um, and this is when uh, the Federal Trade Commission actually began investigating uh, these studios under the Antitrust Act. And so they they essentially broke down, no more block booking, no more vertical, vertical integration. Um, the system cannot operate in the same way. Uh, I believe that Olivia de Havilland was also involved in this in terms of actually suing mm -hmm. studios in order to get out of her contract. So stars began to gain power during, all the, during this time and were essentially gradually became freelancers basically so what more of what we see now where stars go from studio to studio and do different films there's nothing stopping them from making a film with warner brothers and then turning around and making a film uh with paramount or making a film with united artists and um, now that's usually a they can make sorry go on and now usually when you see a multi-picture deal it's usually something like, oh, okay, Robert Downey Jr. has signed on to be Iron Man in three movies. It's not yeah. like, oh, he's going to do three movies for Marvel or Disney or Universal or whatever. It's he's specifically yeah. going to play this character three times. It's yeah, it's different. Yeah. Much different. And that's 
And that's something that has been negotiated mm-hmm. between the actor and the studio and his agent, etc. Right. Not something that the actor is more or less being forced into. And he says, yeah, I'll play this part. Okay, well, but then you have to play the same part for the next five years. Right. Um, that's not something that, uh, you know, he, the studio cannot tell him that that's what's going to go on. He signs a contract um, right. that agrees to that. Yeah, and usually so, they can do other movies in between, time permitting. Yeah. It doesn't have to be, they're not beholden to that project and that studio exclusively. And But one of the other things, too, that I think is important is that part of what led to the eventual um, antitrust lawsuit investigations all of that is the is also the rise of the unions the screen mm-hmm. actors guild the writers guild all these groups that were like you know we really don't like the way that that these things are being handled there's a lot of stuff that's being hand, handled in these backroom deals and these studio heads are getting rich off of us and we're not getting any of the benefit we have no control over our work whatsoever and so they pushed uh a lot of them were the ones, the, the unions were the ones that went to the government and said, hey, you know, you should look into this and, and really push to make changes from that direction. And that's one of the ways that unions are a good thing. Yes. Yes, definitely. And so, so then this whole thing begins to break down in 1948. There's still... You know, I think that a lot of people view the collapse of the studio system as being like, oh, that meant that this was just over and that the studios vanished. No, obviously they didn't, <laughs> because we do actually still have play- things like Paramount and Disney. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, um, they changed, and and uh, the stars did, get, did gain more power. The creators generally, so directors, writers, etc., did actually gain more power. There's a, there's a lot more... Um, give and take. Also, at the same time, you have the rise of television, um, you have the post-war era, which particularly in America is kind of opening up the playing field a little bit. There's there's not as much demand. There are different kinds of entertainment, basically, being made available. There's also just a lot of uh, film being made. And... Um, and so then you also begin to get stars opening up their own production companies, um, independent of studios, being able to release those films in theaters. Uh, and, and so things, things change, even though many of the faces stay the same. Uh, and then also just a number of the people who were in charge of these studios either died or retired. Mm-hmm. So you didn't have these kind of very powerful studio heads who are essentially running everything anymore. So that's basically what was going on uh, during the studio system. But, I mean, I think one of the good things, I mean, it's kind of like, maybe it's not one of the good things. It's one of the things that was a result of the studio system that we enjoy is that there were a lot of films being produced during this period. Um, And these were not just prestige pictures. These were also smaller films. These were, film, you know, genre genre films, horror films, melodramas, uh, musicals, films that were just basically there sometimes just to fill out block booking and they can be really really interesting films and uh and you also get things like Casablanca which was made in 1942 which starred not unknown people but not huge stars at that period uh in fact Ronald Reagan was supposed to be in Casablanca instead of Humphrey Bogart um and and Casablanca was essentially made as a B picture that was going to be block booked and it became this huge sensation it became really famous and kind of 
elevated Humphrey Bogart. It elevated Ingrid Bergman. Uh, and it, it kind of changed, it changed the way that people looked at them and the way that people saw them. Up until that point, Bogart had been primarily a, uh, a gangster. And, uh, and he had also played all sorts of other roles. Like he plays a Mexican in one film that mm. is just, I mean, if you ever like watch some of Humphrey Bogart's early films sometime, you're just like, they had no idea what to do with them. <laughs> true. Um, but a lot of the time he was playing gangsters and heavies, right? And, and before that he had done the Maltese Falcon. Um, but even then it's a very kind of nebulous character. And so, Casablanca sort of moved him into the sort of stoic uh, anti-hero uh, genre. And so, you know, these these films, some of, some of these were films that just weren't intended to be anything. They were intended to fill out programs uh, and, and ultimately became major sensations. So I think that there's a lot of interesting stuff that also goes on within the studio system. And this, this really is the point at which you get star personas, you get these the studios developing the whole concept of the star and who the star is and how uh um how beloved they are and and the way that publicity looks at them the way the public looks at them um and both the good sides of the stars and also the the not so good sides of the stars uh when errol flynn was accused of rape uh in his, during in in his career, it actually the studio actually saw this as being kind of a positive thing, because it reinforced this whole sort of roguish, uh, not quite villain character, and and it and so they spun it in they spun this this literal rape case rape accusation, into something that was positive <laughs> for Errol Flynn, which you know I don't know we don't know anything about that. Right now. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, and it kind of, those types of, of things birth that concept of all press is good press. And it was, it didn't matter what the tabloids were saying about you as long as they were saying it. And yeah, through that, you get a lot of things that got swept under the rug. And that was kind of where, as we've talked about many, many times on this podcast, I mean, that's where the casting couch became a very mm -hmm. common thing. And one of those open secrets that everyone knows that happens, but nobody ever talked about. But, um, but yeah, and that is what led to where we're at now today. Still, the client trying to clean up messes that have been part of the industry and accepted as part of the industry for 70 years. Well, it's interesting how much of that really is in a certain sense a result of the the way that Hollywood operated in and what is a relatively short period of time yeah. right the 1930s and the 1940s that's not it's not actually that long yeah um but it it makes Hollywood this worldwide force and some of that is a result of World War II uh because which essentially decimated all other uh, film industries except for the Hollywood film industry. So Hollywood becomes basically the only game in town. You can't, there's there's nothing else to watch. Uh, one of the reasons why the French filmmakers so venerated uh, Hollywood films in, in the 40s and the 50s and then into the 60s when they began making their own was because that was all they got to see. They didn't really get to see French films. Every other film industry worldwide um, was decimated as a result of World War II and as a result of fascist re regimes and as just everything except for Hollywood. Holly so Hollywood essentially became uh, ascendant during uh, 
prior to, during, and then directly after World War II. So it's it's an it's interesting the way that all of these things are connected to one another, mm-hmm. and it really does inform the way that even we look at stars now. You know, we still talk about star personas as being incredibly important, and we're surprised when stars move outside of those personas. Yeah, it's true. It's very true. Um, one of the things that I think is worth talking about is because um, last week we talked about the production code and how that informed a lot of decisions on what could and couldn't be shown on screen. Um, and I think that it's really interesting to to look at what was happening in the films that were being made, especially when you look at the stuff that's in the years immediately after World War II, when the men are coming home and they're wanting to go back to their, their jobs that the women had been filling during the war. And uh, they wanted the women to go back to the homes to take care of their families. And so the movies reflect that. And so much of, so much of the way that we think the world looks, not necessarily that we agree with it, but the way that we think the world looks, it comes through what we see on TV and in the movies. And that really shapes how we think the rest of the world is. And so the movies that start coming out of the studios are these happy homemaker wives and these, you know, Husbands that go off to work and it's really trying to reinforce that like, this is normal. Go back to the kitchen, ladies. The husbands are home. And you see that so much, especially in movies in the late 40s and the 50s. And it's really interesting to look at that and see how they're directly trying to influence what was happening in American homes. Yeah, it it was this kind of... um... Uh, it's it's the happy it's the happy uh-huh. nuclear family. It's the American, um, it's the white picket fence kind of thing, yeah. and that's also influenced by television. When you get into the nineteen fifties, mm-hmm. um, you know, Leave It to Beaver, Father Knows Best, and My Three Sons, and all of those things. You know, even even and it's a little more progressive, but even the Dick Van Dyke Show, yeah, uh, which still has that kind of like, okay, the wife is at home and she doesn't work and she takes care of the child and she she looks after the home and the husband goes to work and that's that's the way that it works, right? Um, and, and of course, you know, that's, and that, uh, that is also this, this nostalgic view that even we talk about today, it's just like, we're going to go back to old American values. It's just like, well, whose values exactly? Like this, this was just basically what was being sold to us Mm -hmm. and what was being sold to our parents. And that this was, this was like, okay, this is what's normal, right? Um, this is what you should be aspiring to. Uh, and that doesn't necessarily reflect reality. It reflects what the system wants you to think reality is. Exactly. Um, I remember back when blogging really became popular, like when it first started to really take off in the uh, like late 2000s, like 2006, 2009, that, that yeah. time period. And I remember seeing a lot of people start to like especially moms that was kind of the rise of the mommy blogger and they started talking about their struggles with postpartum depression started talking about their struggles with how to discipline their kids and thoughts that they were having that I was just like that's horrifying that people are thinking this you know but they started to find kind of their tribes and started to understand that it wasn't just them 
that were feeling this way, they had, you know, this was actually pretty common. It, not necessarily a good thing or a normal, but it was common. And so people were starting to really get more uh, open about talking about the things that they struggled with. And I, I see that continuing now. Like, we, mm-hmm. you know, we have really uh, normalized a lot of things. Um, but even the things that we still say, well, no, that's not okay, but we can talk about it. And I think that so much of what was happening at that time, you know, you don't think that you're allowed to complain. Women are like, well, you know, they're kind of isolated. They're sitting in at home. And if they don't want to be fixing themselves up for their husband and having his dinner on the table when he gets home, they aren't in a position to say that they think that. And because they're mm-hmm. seeing it on the screen all the time, they think that there's something wrong with them and they don't have a way to talk it out and, and express what they're really feeling. And I think that that's um, one of the interesting consequences or side effects of, of what was happening and what happens when you have films that are being made by one specific group of people who are yeah. very interested and vested in controlling the group think and making sure that everyone sees the world the same way. Well, that's that's the thing. That's what so much of studio filmmaking was, is that, you know, these each studio even has their own niche. They have their things that they do. And they they and because they're under the code, because uh, they're they're essentially selling their worldview to theaters, which are then selling them to um, to the public, obviously. And so it's 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 very interesting. It's also interesting where the cracks begin to appear. And you know, you're talking about so the studio system begins to decline around about 1948. Mm-hmm. Uh, but you know, in, in what we're talking about, some of that sort of um, the domesticity, right? The cult yeah. of domesticity in the United States is kind of happening, as you say, post-war and then into the 1950s. Uh, and that's partially a result of television, but also where the cracks begin to appear, places like Douglas Sirk melodramas, right? where you've got things like Imitation of Life and um, uh, Magnificent Obsession and Written on the Wind and these these kinds of films, which are these extreme melodramas, right? Most of them are technicolor. They're really bright and, and intense, right? Uh, but they're actually dealing with some of maybe the, the sordidness that is going along with American suburban desires, right? And the repression that is happening, not just for women, but also for men, the way that this kind of is pushing people into these smaller and smaller boxes and that they're chafing against it and being like, you know, we want to change the way that, that things operate. But but with someone like Cirque, you're actually beginning to get um, questioning that. And I'm trying to remember the name of the film. It's not Magnificent Obsession. It's the other one. Um, uh, it's Rock Hudson and I think Jane Wyman and God damn it, why can't I remember his name? Oh. Can't remember the name of this movie. I will cut this. All that heaven allows. There we go. Oh, yeah, I knew yeah, that I could remember yeah. it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um. And and that one deals specifically with this kind of suburban, um, suburban repression, right? And about particularly female desire uh, in in which you've got this this widow who, and I believe that it's implied that she's a war widow, that like her husband was actually killed during uh, World War II. And she falls in love with the gardener. 
Mm-hmm. And that and that's that's really all that happens, right? But you have all of these requirements of her specifically as this uh, as this suburban middle class wife, affluent wife, who is you know what she's not supposed to get married. She's not supposed to want to have sex, like she's not supposed to have feel passion or desire or anything like that. And that's what the film is about: is about her reacting to this and being like, no, I I want. I want to get remarried. I want to have sex. I want to be with this attractive man that, um, that loves me. Right. Even though there's this pushing and pulling going on with what is acceptable in her society. And so now that's fairly late. That's like 1955, 1956, but you're getting that kind of reaction to, uh, this sort of veneration of American domesticity saying like, this isn't all, nice and happy we're actually creating a society in which a lot in which a lot of people are just unable to express their own desires and and of course there there's some subtext going on there because you've got rock hudson who is as we know is was a gay man who was having to um remain in the closet for a very long time uh even though he was well known in hollywood for being gay uh, what else was I going to say? I was going to say something else. Oh, but so one of the interesting things that um, you also have is the difference between uh, studio output in the 1930s, um, pre-war, and then studio output in the uh, mid to late 40s. Mm-hmm. Because one of the things that the code wound up doing um, pretty much by accident was that so you can no longer really represent sex or sexual things on screen, right? There were a whole bunch of things you couldn't represent. But in, in terms of the way that women and, um, and gender relationships are represented, so you, you couldn't show sex. All right. So what can we show? What can women do on screen that uh, is acceptable? And then you get things like the rise of the, the screwball comedy and rise of melodramas and women and, quote, women's pictures, uh, in which women basically have to be active participants in their own lives. So they're no, they can't really be solely sexual objects because you can't show that. Right. <laughs> uh, but it does have this very odd sort of progressiveness to it because, okay, well, we, we can only, sh- then we can only show them doing fun things, being, you know, what is often viewed as more masculine. Um, so you get films like Bringing Up Baby, you get films like His Girl Friday, where you actually, you literally have Ross Russell taking on a role that was originally written for a man. Uh, you get women who get to be lawyers and judges. You get to, you get women who are are more than than sexual objects or sexual fantasies, simply because they they have to be. Like, there's nothing else that they can be. If you're going to have a woman in a movie, you're going to have to make her do something other than being the, the woman that the guy wants to sleep with. Um, and so you get this, this kind of interesting rise of, uh, of positive representation. Some of the strongest women in film actually pop up in the 1930s and early 40s. People like Betty Davis and Barbara Stanwyck and Roz Russell and... Uh, um, and even and some of the more sexual figures, people like Marlena Dietrich and Greta Garbo, who continue to have a career through the 1930s and 40s. It's interesting to to look at that and see how sometimes um, there are unintended consequences, or in this case, benefits to 
to trying to suppress people. So it's like you're trying to not show women a certain way, but you end up inadvertently <laughs> showing them in a way that a lot of them would prefer to be seen anyway, um, <laughs> as smart and capable and <laughs> working in professional tr- careers. And um, mm-hmm. yeah, and it's just kind of funny how how those things happen and then they, they give rise to later movements as women are like, well, yeah, now I want to do this and I want to have more of that. And then when the studio system kind of finally starts to fade away and then you get into the sixties and seventies and then you start to have more women making movies again. Um, Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is because of breaking down some of those barriers on screen. Um, that we're all about actually putting up barriers in the first place. It's just very funny how <laughs> circular it is. <laughs> just so there's some unintended consequences yes. of, of, because yeah, I mean, if, if you say, if you say, okay, you're not allowed to show sex on screen and you're not allowed to so- show particular sexual subjects on screen. A lot of that has to do with women. Mm-hmm. Like a lot of, like if you're talking about abortion, if you're talking about prostitution, anything like that, that has to do with women. And, so you have to find other things to put, you know, you can you have to, you have to find something for Claudette Colbert and Greta Garbo to do. What are they going to do? Right. Who's Marlena Dietrich going to be? If you, <laughs> if we can't talk about Marlena Dietrich being hot, then, you know, what are we going to talk about? And that's not saying that, you know, there was no sexuality on screen or anything like that. In fact, there was some really interesting uses of sexuality. Um, one of my favorites is the famously is the, um, the kiss in Notorious. Uh, which circumvents the, uh, it's between Cary Grant and Ingrid Bergman, which which circumvents the rule that uh, kisses could not last longer than, I think, a minute or 30 seconds, something like that. <laughs> uh, and so what Hitchcock did is he filmed his stars basically embracing uh, for an extended period of time, Every, kissing each other every once in a while, but most of it is just about this intimacy, like how close they are. And the two of them were apparently very uncomfortable <laughs> with this. <laughs> they they did not. They were like, "This is this is distressing." But what what Hitchcock was doing was he was actually getting around some of these um, some of these things of saying like, "Okay, you're not allowed to show them kissing for for longer than a set amount of time." It's like, "All right, well, they're not going to kiss. They're just going to you know." make out every once in a while and talk about chicken. And it's like, what are you going to do? You can't, you can't say it's just like, well, that's against, that's against the rules. It's like, no, it's not. It's not against the rules actually. Uh, And you get that a lot in films. You get films that get this sort of cinematic shorthand that, that develops, you know, the fade out, right? So you, you have two characters kissing and then it fades away. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, well that means, you know, that's, that's cinematic shorthand for, and then they had sex. Right. Uh, you can't say that. You can't show them getting dressed in the morning or anything like that. But the viewer is aware of what this is supposed to mean. Um, so it's, it's always interesting to me how they man how different directors and studios, etc., actually do manage to get around censorship uh, guidelines a lot. I remember being so shocked when it occurred to me after I don't know how many times I'd seen the movie that. Um, in Casablanca, their relationship did involve more than just kissing. <laughs> <laughs> like, all of a sudden, one day I was watching it, and I was like, wait a minute. <laughs> I think they had sex. <laughs> My God. Yep. <laughs> but she was married. 
Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah, there is there's that one scene. I think it's where they like she find uh, she they they kind of, they sort of reconcile where mm-hmm. yeah when know, she's yeah, trying she, to get the papers and yeah she's yeah trying to get that, that whole and there's a fade out <laughs> and then it's like fade in and it's the same scene <laughs> just like it's implied a little while later you're like yeah because oh. then later when he's talking and he's like she tried everything to convince me and I'm like wait a minute <laughs> everything. <laughs> Yeah, you're just like, huh? I wonder. Oh, I get it. But it's, it's, it's such an odd thing because you know now now that you know you would show the sex scene, or you might not even you might not show the sex scene, but you would show them waking up together right. or something that would vary that would be like yes, they're getting out of bed now, you know. Or when he's trying um, to talk about how how she was trying to convince him he would make some comment that was vaguely slut-shaming, even if he wasn't trying to be offensive yeah. about it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But but in, in this period, you can't do that. Right. So so you you have to sort of depend upon your view, being like, ah! ah <laughs> well, and then it's funny, because it. then I start thinking, like, okay, that was my grandpa's favorite movie. Like, he understood that, right? Like, he got that? Was he naive <laughs> and silly? Like, I don't know. <laughs> I can't I mean, ask I'll him bet, that. I'll bet that Grandpa got that. He I'll probably he did. did. I'll bet that he did. I mean, you know, I I know that we we are all shocked, but our grandparents did in fact have sex. What? Like, that is something that happened. Lies. I know. My mother like, was immaculately conceived. And so was I. My mother has three sisters, so... I mean... There are lots of miracles. <laughs> I'm pretty, pretty positive that my grandparents had sex. Um, but it's, it's, it is weird how these kind of rules, right, do yeah. warp the way that we view older films sometimes. That we do almost view them as not quite as sexless, but as like, oh no, they didn't do that kind of thing, you know? Yeah. Well, this um, is what I was talking about last week, where it's like, we yeah. because of that, we have this very this view, this obscured view where we start to think like, Oh, people from that era were very puritanical and they, they were, Mm -hmm. you know, prim and proper and never thought out of line and never definitely never did anything out of line. And, um, it's because this is what we're given to see. This is sort of the historical record that most of us take in from that period. Cause I don't know about your high school history classes, but ours got to like, the industrial revolution, then we ran out of the school year. So, um, you know, it's like, (laughs) you just kind of like, Oh, piece it together through watching leave it to beaver. Like, wow. Yeah. That's how my mom grew up. Totally. It was absolutely like this. This is a documentary and, (laughs) and uh, yeah, it warps our view. Well, and, and then you get, I mean, because because once the studio system breaks down, and then in addition to the studio system breaking down, the production code begins to break down as well. Yeah. And so you do get more sexual things popping up in films. You do get more violence and things like that. You get things like Streetcar Named Desire, for Christ's sake. Mm-hmm. Uh, Thank goodness which, for that. Ooh. You know, oh, that's such a... Maybe we'll talk about Streetcar in just a minute, because, man... Uh, <laughs> That is a disturbing film to watch as a woman. That's all I have to say. It is, but man. But man, yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> We're a little distracted. All right, well, let's talk now. about. 
Let's talk about Streetcar. Let's so, do. Uh, I, I remember seeing Streetcar uh, in, or see, actually, I first saw Streetcar like ages ago, but then um, we watched clips of Streetcar in a, a film class <laughs> in grad school. And one of the things that, that the professor was like, is just like, he's hot. Like, Marlon Brando is hot. And not only is Marlon Brando hot, the camera wants you to be attracted to him. Like, oh, yeah. It mm-hmm. paints him as being sexy. And then so you have this very, it's like I say, it's weird to watch as a woman because on the one hand, he is this like animalistic bastard, right? He's an asshole. He's not a nice character. Um, and by the end of the film, he's raped the main character mm-hmm. uh, and dr- driven her mad, quite literally. And... It's very disturbing to watch that as, as a female viewer because you because you know you're just like yeah I'm really attracted to him and yes he is a horrible rapist like it's it's a very interesting dichotomy but the film does it so well well and I think it's important because it it it's easy to think like oh rapists look like Harvey Weinstein you know like unattractive yeah. that's what they have to do to get the girl you know like. Um, they have to take it by force and violence, but when you start to see, like, no, these very attractive men can be very, uh, dangerous, uh, oftentimes mm-hmm. more dangerous because of the fact that they're so attractive, and, you, and that's one of the things that gets really tricky, is, like, when you're attracted and then something goes wrong, then you start to think, like, well, but did I bring it on myself? I don't know. And so I think that, um... Mm-hmm. Seeing, I'm not saying that Streetcar does that, but seeing that depiction where you see this very, very attractive man who's also extremely dangerous and volatile is really important. It's it's yeah. really helpful to see that and to understand that the problem is these bad men. It doesn't matter what package they come in. Well, and... That's <laughs> <laughs> uh, I do. I do think that that you get into more of the female gaze as the 1950s and the 1960s go on, mm-hmm. um, because so streetcar is a good example. So there is definitely a female gaze to the way that Marlon Brando is looked at and and the way that his body is absorbed. The the number of times that we take the perspective of Blanche or of Stella, yeah, um, in seeing him and being frightened of him, but also being attracted to him. Uh, you get something similar in one of my personal favorite films, uh, The Long Hot Summer, with Paul Newman. Uh, in, in which... <laughs> Sorry, in which I love him. Are, he's, it's, I mean, you know, Paul Newman is the female gaze, like, personified. Yep. <laughs> uh, it's just like, what, what do you think of when you think of the female gaze? Paul Newman. <laughs> he never uh, was unattractive at any point in his life. God. Um, but the the long hot summer. Now he he's a much more positive character than uh, than Brando in in Streetcar. But it's it's something similar. So there's a scene where you know it's so hot inside that he's gonna go sleep on the balcony, and he comes out and he's wearing almost nothing and he's Paul Newman and he's just cut and gorgeous and everything. But you've got Joanne Woodward who's inside her room, you know, and he's standing on the balcony. He begins calling to her, right. <laughs> And it's incredibly sexy. Like, it, it just is. But you already get the sense of this camera looking at him in a different way. It is it is kind of developing her building attraction to him. It is, it is putting the viewer in 
to a degree in her position and saying like, you know, you've got this gorgeous shirtless man standing on your balcony calling to you. Uh, <laughs> you know, what is wrong with you? Why don't you go out there? <laughs> but I think that it does kind of contribute to that sense of the female gaze. And so that's, that's, you know, 1950s, 1960s, you're getting into uh, a very different era of Hollywood filmmaking and a, and a new generation of actors uh, that's beginning to kind of take this as more like, you know, hey, women are attracted to men, men are attracted to women, this is something we could actually show again. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think, too, that part of it was they had to find different ways to build that star persona because they couldn't just lock people into, you know, a five-picture yeah. deal or whatever, so they had to find different ways to to do that. And so you have Brando in his very first film being, you know, shot like this gorgeous, like, you know, whatever. And same with Paul Newman. And you have this with women too, where they have to, they have to film them in, in, well, they don't have to, but we appreciate that they did. Um, but they film them in very specific ways so that it's not just about what they're saying or what their character does, but you, you see them and, and, and start to form, like, I want to see more of this person. And mm -hmm. so I'll go see the next movie and the next one and the next one because you just want to see more of them. Mm -hmm. Yeah, exactly. Um, and, and you also get a lot of kind of uh, switchover. So there are a lot of directors who were working in, under the studio system. There were a lot of stars who were working in, under the studio system who then continued to be stars and directors and creators into the 1950s and the 1960s when this kind of thing is beginning to break down. It is changing a lot. Uh, and so you get some really interesting overlap. You get you get, even get people like Gary Cooper appearing in shockingly violent films um, in, the, in the late 1950s and, uh, and, and onward. So it, it's, it's interesting also the way that star personas begin to change. Um, as kind of some of the restrictions are loosened, as they have more flexibility, as they're able to go to other countries to make movies or um, make movies with independent production companies that are not um, directly under the control of a single studio head or something like that. And uh, the, the, whole, the whole nature of filmmaking changes. I, I do think that one of the most interesting periods for American filmmaking is the 1950s and the 1960s because it's this transitional period, because people are seeing how far they can push things, how things have changed, what stories they're allowed to tell, what stories they're not allowed to tell, and what they can do with those stories. Um, and, and, and culture is changing also. You know, the, There are things that are happening within the wider culture that are informing the way that films are made and vice versa. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Go on. Well, I was just going to say, um, so before we started recording today, we were talking a little bit about women directing and, um, I mean, cause all this starts in 1928, you have the first Academy Awards, um, as the, um, as the studios are starting to take control and, and, um, take over the industry and, uh, women start getting pushed out. We'd had, you know, we had talks about Lois Weber and, and Frances Marion and Mary Pickford and, and some of these other women who were producing and, and creating a lot of films, they get pushed out of the system. So then you have um, very few women working in significant roles behind the scenes as far as directing, writing films and stuff. And one of the things that I did a couple years ago was I went through and looked at 
the Oscars from the perspective of like female directed films. And, um, I mean, yeah, Dorothy Arzner was pretty much the only woman that was directing movies for, during the studio era and, um, became the first woman to direct a film that was nominated for an Academy Award. That, that actually held until the fifties. Um, there were a couple of short films in between there or one other short film in the thirties, but then, yeah, it wasn't until the fifties that another narrative film directed by a woman was nominated for an Oscar or a feature length film at all. There was a documentary and then a foreign language film. It's just crazy to look at as, as, um, Hollywood kind of was growing and they were pushing women out that became apparent in, in so many elements of the industry that they had helped to build. And I just, it, it makes me crazy. And it's, it's interesting because I, like I told you, I hadn't, I haven't added this year's nominees. So I don't have like the American factory documentary and stuff like that. But, uh, up through 2018, there had been 299 total films nominated for Oscars uh, that were directed or co-directed by women, because a lot of these were uh, co-directed with men. But um, before 1960, there were only two feature-length films That's insane. on that list. Yeah, <laughs> mm-hmm. That's insane. Well, you know, let's talk about Dorothy Arzner, because um, we've been talking a lot about directors and stars etc and and arsner really is the only woman working under the studio system yeah um and and now she actually got her start uh early on she she worked in silence and she sort of moved she worked with demille a lot she moved uh upwards she worked in the script department she also worked as she was a set dresser etc and eventually um she uh she made a number of features in, including a number of features for paramount uh, and, and it's, she's an interesting filmmaker because it, again, I think some of it is also the way that we perceive these films. Um, if you sit down and you watch a film from the 1930s, right, you have certain expectations about it and you, you recognize the stars, right? So one of the first films, one of the films that, um, Arzner made was Christopher Strong, which starred, uh, Catherine Hepburn. Uh, this is from 1933. There's um, Honor Among Lovers, which stars uh, Claudette Colbert, and uh, Craig's Wife, which starred Roz Russell. And then like her most famous film is Dance Girl Dance, which uh, features Lucille Ball, and I believe also Maureen O'Hara. <laughs> I think so. I think that I'm right on that. Yes, Maureen O'Hara. Maureen O'Hara, who cannot dance. <laughs> <laughs> So, Savory, I just want to mention that. <laughs> it's very odd. Uh, but but so these films are, you know, they, these are big stars. Um, this is a, at one of the big five studios at Paramount. Um, and, and it's interesting to actually get to watch some of these films knowing that it's a woman who directed it. Very often um, she had a hand in the screenplay or she often had fellow writers who were... Uh, fellow female writers working on the screenplays. So it's a it's this very female gaze and this very female look at these stars that we're used to seeing via the male gaze, that we're used to seeing in um, uh, in films that are, you know, the, that are more repressive to a certain degree. 
And so Arsner's films, she's often become she's often been treated like a footnote, and I think that this is changing now. But Arsner's films are really, really interesting simply for the period that they were made in and the comparisons between the way that they look at women in, say, Dance World Dance versus uh, the way that Busby Berkeley musicals look at women um, and or the way that, uh, you know, some of the George Stevens films uh, look at women. So there, there's a, there are interesting elements to, I think, what, Dar- what Arsner was producing within this, this fairly restrictive system. Yeah. Well, and you say, you know, a lot of people don't know about her and that, and she's kind of in a race. That is so true. We have over at award circuit, we have someone who does some work for us and he knows so much about, um, about classic film, just about the rise of, of cinema and very early film history. And I threw out a question that was, who was the first woman to direct an, an Academy Award nominated movie and he had never heard of Dorothy Arzner. And I'm like, how is that possible? And, but it makes sense because she isn't someone that gets taught about. It is changing, but, uh, but yeah, this wasn't even that long ago. And it was just like, and this is, comes back to the conversations that we had a couple weeks ago about Alice Gee and Lois Weber and some of these others that it's like, they just have been, deleted from history we just don't talk about them and so because they don't get talked about it's assumed that there weren't women doing this work or that they just didn't exist they didn't want to do the work like weird narratives start to form and Dorothy Arzner is one of those and I'm glad that that she's starting to re- reclaim some of the attention that she definitely deserves I mean her films are still very hard to come by um, yeah, you can't find Sarah's on anywhere, which is the answer to that question, by the way. Um, yeah, you can't find that. You can't even rent it anywhere. So it's I've never seen it. And mm-hmm. uh, Dance Girl Dance is available on Criterion, but um, like they have the actual disc of it. I think either they do have it or they just announced that it's coming. Yeah, it's being released. I think either this this coming month or next month. I can't remember, but yeah, it's it's coming out. Yeah, but um, it's like you know she's got you know ten, twelve, fifteen movies, and you can find maybe three or four of them out there in the world, and it's just it's so unfair. But I mean that is true of of a lot of early film, where it's just you know, such a huge percentage of it has disappeared, but it's especially frustrating that that's happened with the films directed by women, directed by people of color. And this part of why we're doing this, (laughs) this podcast. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, no, exactly. So it's the sense that like, Oh, and, and, you know, I sometimes, and I've been guilty of this where you're like, Oh, well, if they're, if it's not available, they must not be very good films. Right. They must just be like secondary features, not really important films. And I've been guilty of thinking that before, but you know, seeing something like dance girl dance, Craig's wife, uh, which is a fantastic film, really fascinating movie, Christopher strong, which is interesting. It has problems, but I, I think that it's a very interesting film. It's just as good as a lot of the films that were made by men in the same period that are widely available. Um, and, and so these are not bad films. These are not lesser films. Uh, and yet they're so difficult to get a hold of. Like you're saying, there are films that like, we just can't see because mm-hmm. they're not there. They're not available. Um, and I think that it's very, uh, I think it's very interesting 
that that you know the one major female director from this period it's really hard to watch a lot of her films mm-hmm. i'm i'm interested in that well and that's where i start to wonder are they just not available and we need to figure out who has them and get them out into the world or do they just not exist anymore mm-hmm. i mean it's possible that some of them don't exist anymore uh or, you know, they haven't been able to find... It's also possible that there are prints of them that do exist that have not been... They're not good prints. Mm-hmm. Um, and so is not really worth trying to restore. Right. Um, things like that. But at the same time, you know, why why don't we have at least things like Craig's Wife and, um, and We Are Getting Dance Girl Dance and Christopher Strong and those films... Um, why aren't they available on Blu-ray? Why aren't they available? Uh, they were available to stream for a while on the Criterion channel. I believe they've gone off of there now. I'm certain that they'll come back at some point. Mm-hmm. Um, but, you know, why aren't these more widely available? And why aren't they more widely touted? Why aren't they talked about? Because the single female director of the, of the studio system, that's an important fact. Yeah. You know, that's an important element of uh, classical Hollywood. You know, if we're going to talk about classical Hollywood, we can't just talk about people like Alfred Hitchcock, who is very important. I love Alfred Hitchcock, but can't just talk about Alfred Hitchcock mm-hmm. or, or Orson Welles or Michael Curtis or any of these or Howard Hawks. Right. There's also Dorothy Arsner and, and she should be as much a household name as any of those other uh, people. Well, yeah. And and also, what is it about her that made her one that the studios would allow to make movies, you know, like what, what was going on that she got to have that role when so many other women didn't, obviously there was something different about her or at least something about her that stood out. Let's talk about that. Yeah. Well, I think that one one of the proposals, one of the reasons why she kind of was phased out or more, she wasn't forced out, but she, she more or less lost, uh, lost position was, um, she was a lesbian. Mm -hmm. Uh, her films stopped being quite as popular, uh, in the mid forties, right, right about 1942, 1943. And the implementation of the Hayes code really limited what she was able to show. So, you know, one of the things that we're talking about is the studio system and, and the Hayes code kind of go hand in hand. But there was a period where you're, you're talking about pre-code Hollywood, which is also studio system Hollywood. Uh, and so things change over that course. A lot of Arzner's most well-known films are in the very early 30s. So, you know, 1931, 32, 33. Uh, I think that the latest is, 19, is, is 1940, which is Dance Girl Dance, um, in terms of the, the films that she was known for. Mm-hmm. And so I, I think that there was just a system that began pushing her out and making it less acceptable for her to continue to make movies. Um, because, because she was a woman, because she was gay, because her film, you know, one film doesn't make enough money. We've seen this before. One film doesn't make enough money. And it's just like, ah, you're in director's jail now. And so she more or less got phased out of Hollywood. So, so I think that that, I mean, that gives a lot of information. It does. <laughs> we talked about a lot of things. Welcome to what? Film School 102. <laughs> <laughs> Karen, what are some of your favorite films from this period? Like, big ones, little ones, stars that maybe we need to pay more attention to? Who, who are some of the favorite, favorite things from this time period of Hollywood history? Oh, man. I mean, Casablanca is a big one for me. I I love that movie. It was, like I said, it was my grandpa's favorite movie. And I think that that probably is part of why 
a big part of why I love it so much. Um, it's interesting though to see it and as an adult versus when I first saw it in like junior high or something and and how over the years each time I watch it 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 means a little something different. Um, but all good films do that. And uh, yeah, yeah. Um, I there's so many that I love, but I'm trying to think through like what are some that we haven't really talked about? Um, oh, what are some of yours? See, I asked this question, and then I was like, oh, no, do I have answers? <laughs> <laughs> ha ha. Uh, yeah, no, I, I mean, I, I think that there are a whole bunch. There's some of the big ones, stuff like the Maltese Falcon. I, Casablanca, you know, Casablanca is so often kind of uh, noted as being as being one of these, like, major films. Ah, oh, everybody's seen Casablanca. It actually is a great film. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I really like the screwball comedies from this period, which I think I've talked about before. I love His Girl Friday. I love bringing up Baby. Um... You know, Cary Grant films generally, he made some great movies, and he's such a charming presence. Obviously, my man Hitchcock. Like, <laughs> I was going to say, yeah, like, you know, he's, if we're going to talk about... a few in that time. <laughs> no, yeah, Notorious, uh, I think Shadow of a Doubt still qualifies. Um, Strangers on a Train still qualifies. I love Strangers on a Train, oh my gosh. Hitch- Hitchcock was interesting because he was one of the, the few directors in this period... It, it, early, early on, right? Who was known for a particular thing? Mm-hmm. Um, like he was, he made Hitchcock films. So by the time he came to Hollywood, he was sort of already established as making a particular kind of film, and Hollywood more or less kind of solidified all of that. He did make some interesting films that we don't necessarily consider to be Hitchcock films. Um, one of the most notable being Mr. and Mrs. Smith which was a film that he made solely because Carol Lombard wanted to work with him. And uh, it is not a great film, but it it is Alfred Hitchcock's screwball comedy. (laughs) Uh, And it is actually a screwball comedy. Like it's, it's not, you know, it's it's not one of those things that we think of as Hitchcockian quotation marks. Um, It's, it's a screwball comedy starring Carol Lombard and and it's entertaining. It's fun to watch, Uh, but it is, it is odd to think that Alfred Hitchcock made it. Um, obviously, you know, notorious suspicion, you know, we're talking about star personas, um, Cary Grant, I, I'm going to spoil suspicion. So anyone who has not seen it, have you seen it? Yes. Karen? Yes. Okay. So anyone who has not seen suspicion, you know, like blip forward a couple of minutes, um, because I'm going to spoil it. Cary Grant really wanted to be the murderer in that film. <laughs> he yeah. really did. Like he wanted to play that part. He was, he was down for it and the studio would not let them. Uh, because they they didn't think that they didn't want to kind of taint Cary Grant's image mm-hmm. uh, and and let him be a killer. But that like the preference for both Grant and for Hitchcock was that he would actually be revealed to be the murderer at the end. Um, and and I'm always really I, I love suspicion and I like the fact that it still makes you feel really uncomfortable even at the end. Um, but I I desperately wish that they had made that film. Um, I really want to see Cary Grant as the murderer. Oh man, that would have been so good. Uh, and you know what? A couple years later, they might've gotten away with it, but, but not in that period. Well, and if he were making movies now, they definitely would be all about it. They'd be like, yeah, let's oh, do yeah. something that's completely different. So it's funny oh, yeah. how, how that's changed. And we're much less like, 
married to these personas that that get created for people. In fact, we we love it. We relish when when they go against type or or whatever. So yeah. Well, I just think about how shocking it uh-huh. would have been. No and, one would see it coming. Yeah, and like I think Suspicion is like 19, 1941, 42, something like that. Um, to to like have Cary Grant, who's this you know this dashing Hollywood leading man, etc., and to to just be like, and he he fucking killed her. <laughs> like <laughs> that would have been great, but they they didn't let him do it. They did let him. You know, there's there's a little bit of a. There's a question mark, I think, at the end of that film, but, you know, they, they didn't let Hitchcock go as far as he really wanted to, and I'm sorry about that. <laughs> uh, so. Yeah. I mean, so, yeah. I also, on a completely different note, I also have a big soft spot for Frank Capra, and, and yeah. um, like, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington is one of my very favorite movies. I love that movie. Um, and... I, I just, I like him and Jimmy Stewart together. I really, I know that it gets, a lot of people have different opinions, but I love It's a Wonderful Life. My mom and I watch that every year on Christmas Eve, and it's one that I just, I think because of that, it's just like, I don't care what people say about it. I don't care what the criticisms <laughs> are. It's like, no, screw you. That's mine and my mom's movie. We love it. So, yeah. But it's very much this, like, You've got Donna Reed at home, like, raising the kids while he's off fighting the good fight <laughs> against the powers that be. And But she's even a strong, interesting character in her own way. And, and uh, mm-hmm. yeah, I like movies like yeah. that, too. Yeah, I, I, do have to, I do have to mention um, a film that I recently just, that I actually recently saw, uh, The More the Merrier, with, um, it's Gene Arthur, Joe McRae, and uh, Charles Coburn. I have not seen and it. And it is a lot of fun. I think that it's still on I think it's still on Criterion Channel. Um I it might be going off at the end of the month, so so get on it. Okay. Uh it's it's a screwball comedy from it's actually a wartime screwball comedy, so it's fairly late for screwball. Um but it's about Gene Arthur Gene Arthur is a, a young woman in Washington DC and she's opening up she decides that she wants to uh take in a roommate because there's a lack of um there's a lack of housing in Washington, D.C. because of all of the men who are having to come in and out uh, for the war effort. And so she's like, well, I want to do my part for the war effort, so I want, I'm going to take in a roommate. She winds up taking in Charles Coburn, um, who is, first of all, hilarious. And, <laughs> and then he takes in a roommate, uh, Joel McRae. And, of course, a, a kind of romance develops between, without telling her, by the way. Of course. Uh, <laughs> So, so a romance develops between uh, Joel McRae and Gene Arthur, and it's very funny. It's very kind of, it is screwball-y, so, like, the ending, you're just like, what the fuck is happening? <laughs> um, it also, you know, we're talking about ways to circumvent uh, the, the Hayes Code and representations of sexuality. It's famous for having one of the most sexual kisses in, like, cinematic history, uh, at least up until that point. And it is very like, it's, it's almost uncomfortable. Like it's the sense of like, I feel like I shouldn't be watching this. I feel like this, this needs to be a private thing. You guys need to be alone. (laughs) And it's weird because it's like, they're, you know, they're fully clothed. There's, there's, it's just the way that they're photographed and the way that they're relating to each other. You're like, I, I think I'm going to leave. I I don't know about this, but it's a very funny film. And, um, and again, it does get around some of those code issues that, uh, in, in very 
clever and, and entertaining ways. So I do recommend that one. I will Ordinary. watch it today. Seriously. <laughs> I'm excited. <laughs> um, Shout out to the Universal Monsters. Oh, uh, yeah. Always. <laughs> Gotta love those. Always. Bella, Bella, I think that the past week it was, um, it was the, the anniversary of the release of the novel of Dracula. Mm-hmm. Uh, my favorite, favorite vampire forever and always. Love you, Jack. <laughs> uh, and, and Bella, Bella is really my favorite, like, Dracula. I, I think that the, Christopher Lee has been fantastic. Um, uh, you know, I think that Gary Oldman did a good job as far as it went and everything, but my favorite Dracula remains Bela Lugosi. He's the he's the original. Yes, yes, definitely. So, anything else? Any like films that you're just like, oh, I need to talk about this. Uh, I mean, that's the thing. I feel like stuff should be just like burning, but I'm like, I don't know. I I, I think of them kind of. It's funny because we're talking about like block booking and and contracts and stuff and I kind of tend to think of movies from this era in clumps instead of individually in a lot of a lot of times <laughs> like oh the hitchcocks or the monsters or whatever that, that's true and I mean there that was the intentionality behind it mm-hmm. when you really look at it they they were intended you they were intended to be reassuring in a lot of ways yeah um the Shirley I, I Temple love- movies yeah yeah, yeah, no, exactly. Um, I, I do love the Astaire and Rogers uh, films. Yes. My, fav- yes. my favorite is The Gay Divorcee. I think that that's their best because it's their funniest, really. So funny. Mm-hmm. Um, but they're all a lot of fun for, for different reasons. They do get a bit weird in places like Carefree, which is, I think, the one, the one where he's like a psychiatrist. Um, and it's very, it's very odd. And then they dance. So you're like, why are you dancing? You're a psychiatrist. And it's, <laughs> I, I don't know. Uh, there are definitely some odd ones kind of filtered in there, but uh, but I love the Astaire and Rogers films. They're so wonderful together. Yeah, and I mean, two of the biggest studio movies, at least for for the time period, were... It's weird to me that they were released the same year, but The Wizard of Oz and Gone with the Wind. I mean, yeah, those, are, those were huge, huge movies. They're huge hits. Gone with the Wind, adjusted for inflation, is the biggest movie ever. Um it, when you adjust the ticket sales, it's made almost three billion dollars worldwide. It's it's definitely above Avengers and Titanic and Avatar and all that, and which is so interesting to me. And it's a movie that came out in 1939, and mm-hmm. uh, just the way that it not only was so uh, important at that time period, but the way that it's still one that just kind of people just. Um, cling to i guess but the wizard of oz that movie yeah. oh man i, I th- that's that's one that's like it's this interesting fun fantasy movie but it was also terrifying when i was a kid <laughs> and, uh yeah it's it's weird it's a dust bowl allegory it is yeah. um <laughs> in technicolor uh-huh. with songs uh, really it's, fun it's actually, songs. But I will yeah. say that movie took on a completely different uh, view for me when I saw Judy last year. Mm-hmm. Because it does have these flashbacks to Judy Garland making that movie and what like alludes to what happened to her. Mm-hmm. And how that, that movie that's celebrated and, and is one of the biggest movies ever made um, 
how that put her as an individual on this trajectory that basically led to her destruction, her, her own personal destruction yeah. and had implications for the next generation too. And yeah. that's one of the problems with the studio system is how much of that happened with people. Yeah, the, the studio system was very exploitative. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and it was, you know, we're talking about stars being under contracts. You're, you're literally owned yeah. by a studio. Um, and, and you really do not have a say in what kind of films you make and, and, and not even how you lived. Like, it wasn't just about the movies. That's the thing that people don't understand. So many of these like big flashy, like, oh, look, they got married. Like those, those relationships and marriages were dictated by the studio heads because it was good publicity. Um, oh, she's gained a couple of pounds, gotta put her on a super restrictive diet, we can't have that. I mean, every aspect of their life was owned by the studio. Yeah, and and I think that that's something we always have to remember, that there's there's this glamour to it, and there's this excitement to it, and some fantastic films were produced, but there's also a lot of abuse and manipulation, and, Mm -hmm. um, and people literally being owned by companies. I mean, that's, that's what was going on. Uh... I, I do have to say, Gone with the Wind and uh, Wizard of Oz, let us note that these are films made in the 1930s. Mm-hmm. They are both in color. Yes. Yes. There you go. <laughs> these are films in color. So people who say, like, oh, black and white movies, just like, well, so are you also talking about Gone with the Wind and Wizard of Oz? Because those are in color. There are actually color films being made in this period. It was just really expensive mm-hmm. uh, to do, to use color, and so it wasn't used as much for, for the vast majority of films. But even that early. <laughs> yeah. Well, it's also, actually, since you mentioned that, it's also interesting. I think it was Fritzy for a movie Silently who did a really cool thread a few weeks ago about color in film and uh, went back through and... I didn't know some of this, but a lot of times it wasn't even that the movies weren't made in color at the time. The movies that we know as black and white films, it's that the film stock degraded and all they have left are are these black and white prints. Or when they're restoring them, they're like, oh, but this is old. We should restore it as black and white because that's how people will expect to see it. And so they're erasing the color from movies sometimes so that we have this different you know, because of the idea that we have, they're reinforcing that with the, the restorations that they give us. Mm-hmm. It, it, it reminds me of, uh, there was, there was an entire thread I remember discussing, um, Greek statuary, Greek and Roman statuary, uh, a lot of which was actually painted in the time period. Mm-hmm. Um, and that there were like, like actual remnants of paint. So they know that it was painted and it was painted apparently very gaudy colors. <laughs> uh, but in, in uh, some of the restorations of these statues, particularly in the 19th century, this did not conform to the way that um, particularly British archaeologists viewed these statues as this, these very sort of elegant and austere thing. You know, we can't have gaudy colors. Mm-hmm. Uh, so they, they actually removed uh, remnants of paint and things like that because, well, we, you know, we, we can't have Julius Caesar being painted in like red and orange <laughs> and things like that. Um, and so they, they showed, showed some pictures of like the original, like what the statues probably would have looked like originally. And they are gaudy. (laughs) Like it is just like, wow. But you know, I, I think that there is this, it's also about the way that we view these periods of history. Um, it's sort of the un, the unexamined biases that are coming through the people who are doing restorations, like you're saying, to actually remove color being like, well, we can't, 
we can't have that, you know, because we this is how these films are supposed to look. Um, so, yeah, so film history is, I think, is always really interesting. We're going to continue to talk about uh, various themes and genres and time periods of film history. I, I think that we're also not just going to talk about Hollywood. We've talked about Hollywood a lot. Uh, but we're we're also going to go into try to go into some some other countries and and other varieties of filmmaking because film is broad and it's democratic and there's all sorts of interesting stuff that is being made and that is available to watch. So, did you have any final thoughts, Karen, before uh, we close everything out? Uh, just watch more movies. <laughs> just watch all that's the what movies. We're, that's what we're constantly saying on this podcast. Just like, just, just watch more movies. Get your Criterion like, subscription and watch movies. Speaking of. Yes. <laughs> speaking of, I think that we are coming to a close with uh, the Criterion uh, the Criterion competition, but uh, we're going to run it for one more week. Yeah, we decided to extend it one more week. So we'll announce right. the winner next episode. So uh, you still have one week to to get this in. Get uh, obviously before Saturday. We record on Saturdays. So... You have till Friday the fifth. Fifth. All right. Fourth? So Friday fifth? the fifth. That sounds right. Sixth. Something like that. <laughs> fifth. Yeah. This it's coming fifth. Friday. When you are listening to this episode, <laughs> this coming Friday <laughs> is the deadline, and we will also be announcing this on Twitter. So don't worry. Um, for the Criterion Channel contest, send us an email, comment, or DM with your most surprising blind spot, and you will be entered to win three months of the Criterion Channel. Uh, if you send us an email, just put the subject line as Criterion, Criterion Contest, just so that we know to pay attention to it. Um, and, and yes, and some lucky person is going to win three months of the Criterion Channel on us, so I don't know why you would not enter. Exactly. Uh, we are not judging you. We just want to know what your cinematic blind spot is. We all have them. We have talked about some of ours. Uh, I'm going to fill some of mine today, actually. So. <laughs> what are you going to watch today? I think I'm going to watch uh, um, The Man with the Golden Arm, starring Frank Sinatra and nice. Kim Novak. Nice. It's, it's an Otto Preminger film, and it is one that I have been intending to watch for many, many years and just have never gotten around to it, partially because I'm not a huge fan of Frank Sinatra. Uh, but I've heard good things about this film, so I'm going to actually actually go ahead and do that. Cool. Uh, so I think that that is going to close us out. As always, you can get in touch with us, either about the Criterion Contest or other things, on Twitter at Citizen DamePod. We are also on Instagram at Citizen DamePod. We are on Facebook, facebook.com slash Citizen Dame, although God knows how long that's going to last. <laughs> uh, you can send us an email at citizendamepod at gmail.com if you want to enter the Criterion Contest. Uh, that's probably the quickest way to do it, or, or via Twitter. Um, and of course you could go out to our website and read our reviews and all sorts of exciting things on citizendamepod.com. And as always, we want to thank our wonderful patrons who continue to contribute and support us and, and give us the ability to do things like contests and things like that. Um, so thank you so much to Heather, Adriana, Crooked Table Podcast, Michael, James, Katie, Cariata, Mason, Matthew, Monty, Nanina, Nicole, Robert, Sharon, Steve, Tao, and Will. Uh, if you want to contribute to our Patreon, we are at patreon.com slash citizendame. Of course, we know that things are tough right now, um, but we, we always really appreciate it. It helps us keep things going. We do have a Zazzle store at zazzle.com slash citizendame. And if you want to give us a few dollars, you can also send us some money at ko-fi. That's ko-fi.com slash citizendame. 
And as always, we are available individually. Karen, where are you? I am on Twitter and Instagram at Karen M. Peterson. And I am on Twitter and Instagram at LH Business, uh, where I am yelling a lot about the costuming in Birds of Prey. (laughs) (laughs) And I love it all. Maybe I'll watch that again today, too. I I was thinking about that as well, actually. (laughs) Just put it on in the background for a while. Um, So I think that that's going to close us out. Thank you so much for joining us. And we will be talking more about exciting film things in the coming weeks. So we will talk to you later. Bye. Mother, mother, I am glad to see you. Are you all right? That's the man that did it right there. What's the idea here? This lady claims she's been kidnapped. What? They dragged me all the way down the stairs. Just a minute. Did this man have anything to do with it? Why, he was in charge of the whole thing. He told them to kidnap me. Excuse me, madam. Are you referring to me? You know you did. What about this, Burns? Kidnapping, eh? Oh, trying to frame me, huh? I never saw this woman before in my life.